This is Dina Weiss for Hadar on Parsha Tazria, the wisdom of others. Certain types of discoloration and growths on a person or their property can signify the presence of Tzara'at, the mysterious affliction discussed at the end of Parsha Tazria. The process for arriving at a diagnosis of Tzara'at is also discussed in the Parsha. This diagnosis must be arrived at carefully. Tzara'at is considered to be a very serious condition, and the person who has it must be cast out of the camp and let back in only after a complex purification ritual. The Kohen is not only critical to the ritual that enables reintegration, he also must be involved in making the initial diagnosis. Attending to the details of how one is declared afflicted with Tzara'at, especially the involvement of the Kohen, can give us insight into how to go about making significant decisions for ourselves and perhaps more crucially, for others. Any type of affliction that looks to be tzara'at needs to be inspected by the Kohen. Only the Kohen can establish that something in fact is tzara'at. However, no person, even if he is a Kohen, can declare themselves a mitzora, someone who definitively has tzara'at. As the Mishnah states clearly, Kol ha-nigayim adam chut atzmo. Rabbi Meir Omer, Aflo Nige Krovav. A person can examine any afflictions except for the afflictions that are his. Rabbi Meir says he may not even examine the afflictions of his relatives. The prohibition on evaluating one's own condition is intuitive. We are not objective when assessing ourselves. This is reflected in Rabbi Meir's extension of this prohibition to the diagnosing of one's relatives. The reason why I can't be a judge or a witness for or against a member of my family in legal cases is that I am too invested in the outcome. And even if I don't intend to lie or miscarry justice, my perspective might be skewed. It is significant to note that family members are forbidden from testifying in a Jewish court of law regardless of whether their testimony is for or against their siblings, parents, or children. It is not that we assume that family members only lie in favor of one another because they want what is best for the family and might be inclined to distort justice in favor of the ones they love. The prohibition does not distinguish between testifying for positive or negative outcomes. The testimony is considered inherently unreliable, even if no miscarriage of justice is intended. When applied to the case of Tzara'at, the wisdom of not testifying about oneself is similarly clear. The Torah might be concerned that a person will obscure their condition because they don't want to face the consequences. They do not want to believe that they are afflicted. Often, when we experience pain ourselves, we are inclined to dismiss it. We do so even though we know that if someone else presented with that same amount of pain, we would insist on their getting help. We so often ignore our own problems, declaring them insignificant only to find them fester and grow to a point where they can no longer be ignored. But the Torah is not only concerned that a person might misdiagnose themselves as pure when they are impure, the same prohibition applies to a person declaring themselves impure. A person's anxiety about their own condition might lead them to a false positive. So afraid might I be to get sarat that I could become completely convinced that some pimples or insect bites are serious leprous lesions. 
Anyone who has looked up a medical symptom on the internet knows that a slight muscle cramp can become a severe heart attack with just a few keystrokes and clicks. Although we understand that with medical or spiritual maladies, we need to consult a medical or priestly professional, there are so many matters in our lives where we allow ourselves to act as the sole arbiter. And yes, it is often the case that when something directly affects us, we are the most knowledgeable. But the perils of self-diagnosis still apply. We are the witnesses with the most information, and at the same time, our testimony is unreliable and often inadmissible. Often, when we can't make a decision, we will ask our parents, partners, or siblings for advice. Rabbi Mayer's wisdom is relevant here as well. Your family and close friends want to talk things through with you because they love you and they care about you and want what's best for you. And not only does that make them not necessarily qualified to help you, it can also make them uniquely unqualified to help you. Their closeness can produce an unintentional bias that prevents them from having the outsider's perspective that you are looking for. No matter how clear it is to any other observers or to the person themselves that what they are seeing is tzarat, they do not have the authority to make that determination. The diagnosis must come from the Kohen. However, this does not mean that the Kohen's vision determines whether or not the affliction is tzarat. The Kohen may not call something tzarat if it is not in fact so. As the Sifra states, Yechol im amar Kohen al tamei tahor, yehei tahor, Tamulamar tahorhu vitiharo hakohen. Is it possible that if the Kohen says about something that it is impure, that it is pure, then it is in fact considered pure? The verse comes to teach, it is pure and the priest purifies it. This Midrash notices that what the Kohen does when he declares a person pure is merely confirm that this person is not afflicted by Tzara'at. He does not have the power to render pure what is not already so. There is a significant lesson to be learned here about the limits of expertise. Although an outside perspective may be able to provide insight into an issue that we ourselves could not see on our own, even an expert can make mistakes. Although it is wise to seek the expertise of others, we, both as givers and receivers of advice, need to be cautious as to the limits of our knowledge. Being asked to guide another person is a grave responsibility and is one that is fraught with the possibility of errors. The Sifra had explained earlier that the law regarding which type of priests can judge a case of Tzara'at falls along the lines of which people can adjudicate any other legal dispute. Lefishin emar vi'al pihem, yihiyya kol rivichol nega, hikish rivim linegaim, ma rivim shalo bekrovim, af negaim shalo bekrovim. Since it says, by their word will be decided every dispute and every affliction, the verse connects financial disputes and afflictions. Just as financial disputes are not judged by relatives, so too afflictions are not judged by relatives. The Sifra emphasizes the correspondence between legal disputes and the evaluation of tzarat afflictions, though the commonality ends with the number of judges. 
Usually, a financial matter requires three judges, whereas the Torah only specifies a single Kohen. However, even though a priest may inspect a case of Torah alone, perhaps he should not. This is consistent with the laws of judging financial cases, because an expert is permitted to administer justice alone, and yet the Mishnah in Avot warns strongly against judging independently. The Mishnah teaches, Hu haya omer, al dan yichidi, she'ein dan yichidi ela echad. Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Yossi, would say, do not be a lone judge, for there is no lone judge except for one. According to Masechet Sanhedrin, if a judge is sufficiently expert, they do not need to be accompanied by other judges and may in fact render judgment alone. However, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, though he acknowledges the category of the expert, who is as smart and learned as three men and does not need to consult with others, says that even the experts should construct a panel of co-judges and consult with them. He says that only God is wise enough to judge alone and it would be hubristic and unwise for a human judge to act in that way. So perhaps our Kohen, when he is evaluating the cases of Tzara'at, would be wise to acknowledge that even though he is not required to consult with other Kohanim, it would be a humble and judicious practice to do so. Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, claims that only one being, God, judges alone. However, according to Midrashic tradition, even God does not make his decisions independently and consults with others. In Bereshit 126, God appears to be using the divine we when he says, let us make humans. God said, let us make humans in our image and with our likeness. And they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals, and all the land, and all the crawlers who crawl on the land. God created the human in his likeness, in the likeness of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There are two interesting pluralities in this verse. The first is that God speaks as we, and the second is that when he does end up creating human beings, he makes them as a plural being, male and female. Regarding the first plurality, according to Rashi, God uses the pronoun we because he is consulting with the angels. Na'asa adam, af uhu let us make humans. We learn God's humility from here. Since a person has the likeness of angels, they might be jealous of him. Therefore, God consulted with the angels. Let us make humans. Even though the angels did not help God in creating humanity, and there is room for heretics to descend, that is, to err, the verse did not hold back from teaching good manners and the attribute of humility, that the great should consult with and take permission from the small. 
And if it had been written, I will make man, we would not have learned that God spoke with his court, but only with himself. According to Rashi, even God himself does not make big decisions without consulting the angels that make up his heavenly court. And God models this for us even at the cost of his reputation, where a theologically miseducated person might think that God himself is a plural being. But he does so in order to teach us the lesson that we should be humble that we should be willing to consult with others, listen to them, and take their opinion into consideration, even if they are less wise and knowledgeable than we are. Perhaps this also explains why God made human beings as male and female, according to this verse. This points to the first humans as having been created as a pair, as a kind of small community. At no point was there a lone woman who was wise enough to make all decisions on her own, At no point was there a lone man who was completely independent. He was always required to consult with his partner. The source for the notion that God consulted with others before he created the world is found in the Midrash Barishi Rabbah. Bayomer Elohim na'asa adam, b'minim lach. Rabbi Yoshua b'shem Rabbi Levi amar, b'melechet hashamayim v'ha'aretzim lach. Mashal lemelech shehayu lo shnei san klitim. God said, let us make humans. With whom did God consult? Rabbi Yoshua said in the name of Rabbi Levi, he consulted with the creations of heaven and earth. It is analogous to a king who had two counselors, and he never did anything without their agreement. Rabbi Ami said he consulted with his own mind. It is analogous to a king who built a palace using an architect. He saw it, and it didn't please him. Against whom is his complaint? Is it not the architect? That is, as the verse says, God was upset with his heart. This midrash operates under two types of anthropomorphism. The first opinion imagines that God could consult with God's creation, heaven and earth, and receive input from them. God could ask, do you want human beings to be a part of you and act as your custodian? And the world could say yes or no. According to Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Levi, God consults with those who will be most affected by his decision, heaven and earth. This reinforces the notion that when we make decisions, just as we need to have the input of our fellow human beings, We also need to consider the output of our decisions and how they will affect other people with whom we share our lives and this world. The second opinion, that of Rabbi Ami, employs the assumption that God and humanity share a similar division between body and mind. Just as a human being's mind makes a decision that their body then executes, so too this king, and by extension, God, the king of kings. God decides with God's mind, the architect, what the world, God's contractors, will do. Therefore, when humanity, God's builders, destroy the world they are supposed to be helping create, and God decides to send the flood, God is disappointed with God's architect, God's mind, as it were. God has an internal split between his mind and his will and consults with his mind as if it were independent. Sometimes there aren't other people with whom you can consult for any number of reasons. 
In these cases, consult with yourself. Even when God needs to make a decision and no one but God can advise him, God still takes the time to consult with himself, weighing all of the options and trying to examine the issue from different perspectives. Even without others to consult, God uses the model of asking for an outside opinion so that he won't be making such a significant decision on impulse. This does not necessarily protect God from later regretting having made humanity as we were, but at least he knows that he didn't cut corners and gave the process its due. Life can sometimes feel like an endless string of impossible decisions, some as inconsequential as what to eat and what to wear, and some that are irreversible decisions regarding life or death. Life can sometimes feel like an endless string of choices that we need to make, some as inconsequential as what to eat and what to wear, and some that are irreversible decisions regarding life or death. We cannot always be sure that we are making the right choice, but we can be sure that we go about the decision-making process in the best and most responsible way. Wishing you a Shabbat of choosing wisely. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Divrei Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.